Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. In the first book, O Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart will be acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I'm pleased to be with you again. I wish my wife could be here. She's up in Nashville with uh, my son, our son, and our daughter-in-law. Our daughter-in-law is expecting uh, our second granddaughter any second, so my wife decided it would be a good idea to stay there just in case she had to catch the baby. So. Anyway, uh, it's, a, it's a marvelous thing being a grandfather. Uh, you know the old joke, um, if you knew how great it was uh, to be a grandparent, you'd just skip the kids and go right to the grandchildren. And there's a lot of truth in that, but you do have to kind of do things in order, and that's a good thing. But uh, just a couple of years ago, I had no grandchildren, and uh, now I have five. So the kids are being fruitful, and that's excellent. And uh, I'm glad to be with you, and uh, it's, always a, it's, a, it's always a lot of fun to come down to Huntsville. As was noted, we'll be back, or I'll be back uh, in uh, June with the rest of the PugCast guys. So, so those of you who've come out to the PugCast live events, I'm the only like physical person that's been in the room at those events in the past, but you'll actually get to see all three of us. I don't know if that's a treat or if not, but, uh, but anyways, we'll be here at the end of uh, that week in in June. So uh, this morning I'm beginning a a series on the book of Acts and it'll take me a long time to get through it because I'm only with you four times a year and uh, so in the year 2030 we'll wrap it up. (laughs) But anyway we'll start now. I'm actually working on a commentary on the book of Acts and uh, so I've been doing a lot of thinking about it. I'm working on five books simultaneously and so things kind of move slowly with all of them but I've been doing a lot of thinking about the book of Acts, just recently preached through the book of Acts at my church up in Battleground in Washington. And uh, so this is kind of heavy on my mind. 
One of the things to think about when it comes to the book of Acts is here we have at the very opening of the, of the book, uh, we, we see someone addressed, Theophilus. Um, and more or less, uh, we've kind of surmised that uh, while this might not be a particular person, maybe it's just a, anyone who could kind of fit uh, the, uh, you know, the name, or, or the name could be applied to because it means lover of God, Theophilus. But there are some commentators who believe that the book of Acts was a legal treatise, legal treatise uh, put together for the emperor. Uh, to be presented to him uh, as Paul came before him for judgment. And everything in the book of Acts is taking you to that moment. The last quarter of the book is nothing but Paul's trek to Rome from Jerusalem and all the things that occurred during that, during that trek. Uh, and, and, and at that point in the book, you go from sort of a 30,000-foot view of the story to a very intimate and sort of detailed presentation of the story because Luke is there for the ride. He sees everything that's going on. He fills you in on a lot of detail that you don't get elsewhere in the book because he's working with secondary accounts. He's, he's listening to other people tell him what occurs. Um, the title of this, of this sermon is Biblical Cosmography. Biblical cosmography. It's a fancy term. I, I, can, I concede that. Uh, we can think of uh, maybe a, a parallel to biblical cosmography uh, in the phrase biblical geography. Um, when you think about biblical geography, you think about maps, right? Maps of the Holy Land, maybe at different points in history. A map of, say, the way things looked with the nations during the time of, say, Abraham or later on with David and Solomon, and then in the New Testament with the, with the, the Caesars and the, and the empire and all of that. Uh, biblical cosmography kind of takes us further out. It's a, if you think about a lens where you can kind of focus in or maybe pull back, that's uh, what I'm referring to. And biblical co cosmography is the big picture. And here we have the big picture addressed right in these first uh, 11 verses of the first chapter of the book of Acts, we get a sense of just the scope. Now, when you begin, uh, you know, anything, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, a battle or a journey or even a project, it's good to get a lay of the land to understand the topography. There's that marvelous scene in Patton. Remember Patton, right? That film with George C. Scott where... Uh, Patton, uh, who believed that he had been reincarnated and that every life that he had lived prior to his uh, life as Patton uh, was the uh, life of a great warrior, general. Isn't it the way it always works with people who think they've been reincarnated? They, they, they weren't just boring people, you know, or, you know, people that were just like forgotten people, but they're always tremendously significant in a previous life. But anyway, uh, Patton, as he's looking out over the salted plain where uh, Carthage had once stood, reminisces. And there's that marvelous scene where he, that the reason it's salted is because the Romans, when they destroyed it, they destroyed it utterly and salted the land so nothing would grow there ever again. And he's describing the arrival of the legions, the Roman legions as they're marching upon Carthage. We have that kind of thing here with this biblical cosmography 
a sense of the scale of the battle and what we, as followers of Christ, are engaged in in this battle. So let me take you to that um, and uh, help you see what I'm talking about. One of the things that I think is worth noting is that the world that the apostles performed their ministries in and the world that we currently live in have some remarkable similarities. Um, we live in a cosmopolitan age. What I mean by that is an age in which people are interacting across cultural barriers uh, or, you know, and traveling a great deal. I'm on a plane you know, maybe twice a month. You know, just a few days ago I was in Miami, then I was in Pittsburgh, and then I went down to Nashville and I drove down here. That's like a week for me. <laughs> and I'm just sort of like in a daze all the time because of this world that we live in where you can kind of get around so quickly and uh, so easily. And it was something like that in the first century. Uh, when we think about the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, uh, what we had is one quarter of the entire world's population under the rule of the Caesars, very diverse, lots of languages, lots of trade going on. We even have accounts from uh, China from the first century of traders going to the empire and uh, bringing back accounts to uh, their leaders in China, what things were like in the empire. So it was a remarkably diverse place. And when it, the Christian faith was proclaimed in that environment, uh, there was a, the, the, the same set sort of uh, response, or the, the same responses, you could say, that we often experience in our time. One is hostility. There's resistance to the message of the gospel, and we'll get into that in a little bit here as to why, but also a remarkable degree of openness, and openness in surprising ways and in surprising places. I was just with a guy, a couple of guys. I was, when I was in Miami, I was at the Bitcoin conference. I was speaking at it, and I met a couple of guys who were converted, became Christians in 2020. Isn't that an interesting you know, date or year to come to Christ? And they came from a great distance. I'm not talking about physical distance. I'm talking about spiritual, intellectual, worldview distance into the Christian faith. And I spoke with one of the guys. He was converted at Burning Man, of all places. Uh, this was a guy who had spent years in New Age thought, was something of a savant, gotten into psychedelics. And as he was there at Burning Man, he felt compelled to go to this Christian ministry that was established there. He had just come through a number of you know, sort of difficult experiences in his life. And he was marvelously converted in that, in that tent. As, uh, I won't go into all, the, all of the uh, kind of the details. Uh, that's really for him to, to talk about, not me. But the guy who was sitting right next to him said, yep, yeah, same thing for me. And, I, and, I, and as I got into it with these guys, uh, what occurred in 2020 was like an apocalypse. The word apocalypse means to reveal or revelation. And what they saw for the first time in their lives is the stuff that they had bought into and the people that they thought were their friends had let them down. In fact, some of the people that they thought were you know, people they could trust turned on them like rabid dogs because they wouldn't go along with all the things that everybody was supposed to go along with at that time. And so those guys came to Christ, and it's been a marvelous sort of, sort of uh, rapid uh, set of uh, experiences since then that have led to their, those guys growing in the faith. But one of the things you see in 
the book of Acts is people who you would, you would not suspect being open to the gospel, being tremendously open to the gospel. And uh, one particular category of person is the Roman centurions. There's not a bad thing said in the New Testament about a centurion. Now, the centurions were the backbone of the empire. They were basically uh, counterinsurgency. They were like the Green Beret. <laughs> they they uh, would go and live in the, in, in the communities that they were supposed to help govern. Uh, they knew the people. They would build relationships with people. And uh, in each instance, when a centurion is mentioned, uh, he's a good guy. But those guys are open to the gospel. And one of the reasons I suspect is because they were disillusioned. They had just come out of a period of civil strife and civil war in the empire that shook their faith in the, in the empire and its claims about peace and truth and justice and so forth. And they were looking. These were solid guys, virtuous men, warriors, who were looking for something that was worth serving. And so we see, for example, a couple of times the Apostle Paul's, his life was saved by a centurion. So anyway, uh, that's some background information. But uh, when we think about that situation in our own, another thing that we have in common with, the, with, the, with the, that time is that the, the, the cosmography has not changed. We still live in a world that's uh, uh, ordered in a particular way. When I talk about being ordered in a particular way, I'm talking about spiritual terrain, not necessarily physical terrain. And whenever uh, you think about terrain, if you're about to engage in a battle or if you want to plan a, a journey, high ground is where you want to be so that you can survey your surroundings. And what we see uh, in this uh, early section of the book of Acts is Jesus rising and getting to the high ground. Um, so we know, as Christians, Jesus rose, but he didn't stop rising. He kept going up until he uh, ascended into heaven so that he could sit at the right hand of God the Father. And height in biblical cosmography, the vertical dimension, uh, is something that uh, we need to understand in terms of authority. So what's being measured or what's being a, sort of being charted when we talk about the vertical dimension is authority. Not necessarily not necessarily a physical verticality, but a spiritual verticality is what's being uh, noted. And the physical dimension of, uh, or sort of the physical features that we can note with regard to Christ's rise are intended to serve as analogs to help us understand his ascension into the heaven uh, where he is seated at the right hand and, uh, and thereby uh, intuit from that his spiritual, moral, political authority. Let me put it this way. When Jesus rose, um, it was intended to say something about his authority, not necessarily imply that uh, he was traveling a physical distance to get to heaven. In other words, um, when the cosmonauts went to outer space, those early Russian uh, space travelers who orbited the earth and mocked Christians on the ground. Ha! We're up here and there's no heaven. The joke was really on them. When we, when we speak of heaven, we're not talking about some location out beyond Andromeda or something. In other words, Jesus isn't still traveling. 
to get there. It's a pretty big place up there, as some of you know. What was being uh, uh, referred to is the, as I noted, spiritual and uh, sort of uh, terrain that's being tra traversed with the ascension. Anyway, that's an aside, but an important thing to, to note. And because Jesus uh, has risen uh, and is now at the right hand, we can see in the book of Romans in chapter 8 what that implies. So if you have your Bible and you want to follow along, I'm going to, to Romans chapter 8, and I'm beginning to read at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, or if God is for us who can be against us? He, he who did not spare his own son, but gave uh, him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth. That's an interesting uh, clause there, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now why is that so? Because Jesus is at the right hand and interceding for us. He is seated in heavenly places. So with that said, I want to also uh, note that when I use the word cosmos or cosmos, I'm not referring to outer space. I'm referring to something else. The uh, Greek uh, word that we translate into the English word world very often in the Bible is the Greek word kosmon, kosmon. Uh, it's where uh, we get the term worldly from, uh, and a couple of words that we often associate with worldliness are cosmopolitanism and uh, cosmetology. I don't know if you've ever made those connections, but the word Cosmos doesn't mean what we often mean when we use the word world. When we use the word world, we are often referring to a place, physical location, um, uh, the location that we find ourselves in. We're in the world. And uh, often, um, I think the subtle sort of distinctions that are made in the New Testament are lost upon us for this reason. So. Sometimes in the New Testament, when the term cosmon or cosmos is used, it's in re reference to the world or the order that God has made. So, for example, in John 3.16, we're told, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? So that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Um, now, that is the world that God made. For God so loved the world. In other words, God loves the order that he established. But we're told later in the book of 1 John that we're not supposed to love the world. Anyone who loves the world doesn't have the love of the Father, right? So how do you make sense of that? Well, 
the world being referred to there is the disorder that we've made of things. So what's being referred to when the world is used in the pejorative in the New Testament is that. But the same Greek word, word is used. There are different sorts of order. There is the order that God has established, and then there's the mess that's been made of it. World in the best sense, the order that God's established, world in the worst sense, what's been made of it. All of that's really important uh, to keep in mind. But what, how, what we ought to keep in mind as well is that God is not content with the disorder that's been made of his good order. He's taken steps to address it and to restore the order that he established, and that's what redemption is intended to secure. And in order to do that, the son had to descend into the disorder that, uh, that uh, I'm referring to when I'm talking about what the mess we've made of it. And there are different passages in the book of Ephesians that, helps us, that help us to see this. Now, I'm going to re read a few sections from the book of Ephesians that get into this matter of biblical cosmography. And I want you to note the verticality that's being referred to. These are parts of the book of Ephesians that I suspect we've all just skimmed over and have thought, well, that's just poetry. Just, you know, Hallmark greeting card stuff that the, you know, the Apostle Paul has just kind of thrown in for flavor or to make things sound interesting. What we often miss I think that, you know, we as contemporary Christians almost always miss is this biblical cosmography, the verticality and the order of the creation. So let me take you to Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 16. So Ephesians chapter 1, uh, beginning at verse 16. Here the Apostle Paul says, I do not cease to give thanks for you remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, or hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what the riches of his glorious, uh, uh, what are, I should say, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him uh, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let me continue into chapter 2. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. In other words, you needed to be raised too. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind, 
But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches uh, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by, now we get to the part that everybody's memorized. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, this reference to you and I being seated with Christ in heavenly places, have you ever spent any time sort of thinking about that. I know that for me, I'll, you know, be honest, you know, when I thought about that initially, I, was, I thought it was referring to some future uh, sort of thing, you know, that something that was something that I would get to sort of experience someday. But that's not the case. This is a reference to the present moment. You and I are seated with Christ in heavenly places. So if we're thinking strictly in terms of sort of the geography um, of, you know, the cosmos, um, there's a sense in which it doesn't really map out physically the way I think we think it should. I'm with you right now in Huntsville. I don't feel like I'm in heavenly places. I feel like I'm standing behind a big podium addressing a group of people who are looking at me quizzically. What is this guy talking about? That's, what I, that's kind of how I feel about the moment uh, that I find myself in. And you probably are thinking similar thoughts. What is this guy talking about? What I'm talking about is this, this, this reality that uh, the heavenly places that Paul is referring to uh, are mapped spiritually and not uh, physically. Uh, there is a still a sense in which the physical sort of time and space that we are located in give us, uh, provides for us the, the, the language to, to, to express the notions that uh, are being sort of made real in our lives. We are seated with Christ in heavenly places, but that Christ has now been installed or, or has uh, returned to the place that he descended from and is now exercising authority, and we are in him. And that is getting back to what Matt said earlier about identity, the way we ought to think about ourselves if we're in Christ. So anyway, this provides the, the background for you and I as we think about the book of Acts. This also, I think, is wor it's worth noting at this point that often when we read, say, the book of Acts or any book of the Bible, and this, this isn't a bad practice, it's actually a good practice, but because we have a sort of a sense of what the rest of the story is, we'll read things into the text that are not actually there because we're drawing on other parts of the Bible to fill in things. Let me, give you, let me explain what I mean. In the book of Acts, the big news is the resurrection. It's not the crucifixion. Everybody already knew that. It was a public event. People saw Christ crucified. Even his enemies saw that. There was no mystery when it came to that. 
Lots of Jewish rabbis have been crucified. There was no news with regard to that. The news was the resurrection. And if you go through the book of Acts, every sermon ends with that as the punchline. Every single one. Something to think about. I'm getting ahead of myself, though. Now, we're told here that uh, because Christ rose, um, he is now seated in, in, uh, at the right hand of the Father and has consequently accomplished something that only he could, and that is our salvation. He's, a, he's achieved that. That is something that has been accomplished, and we see that uh, when we you know, read those words in John's Gospel, uh, which Christ pronounces, it is finished, that means there's something that's been accomplished that can't be added to. But is there anything for us to do even so? In one dimension, obviously, no. Our salvation has been uh, purchased for us by the work of Christ, and he's been raised for us. Now, when it came to what is there you know, left to do, it doesn't mean that there is nothing left to do, and that's what the rest of this passage is helping us to understand. There are some things that the uh, apostles were to do, and the first thing that they were supposed to do is wait. See that uh, in verse 4. And while uh, staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, quote, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So they're supposed to wait. I'm not a big fan of waiting. Are you a fan of waiting? I'm not a fan of waiting. Remember that song by Carly Simon? anticipation. It was a ketchup commercial. But there was this, uh, it was put to a, a ketchup commercial, used this song, I should say. But I won't try to sing it for you, but I know the rest of you, th those of you who remember it, it's just going to be an earworm. It's going to go with you for the rest of the day as you hear Carly Simon singing anticipation. The rest of you can go look it up on Spotify. But there was something they were to wait for, and it was the baptism of the Spirit. We see that referred to in verse 7. And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now we're dealing with geography in the sense that we're uh, used to thinking about uh, geography. Um, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They're to be witnesses. They're going to need power in order to be witnesses. And as the story unfolds, you'll see why they need power. There's no way they could accomplish what they were called to accomplish without that help, uh, the presence of the Spirit. And they're called to be witnesses, which, again, is uh, a word that we uh, have in English that loses something in translation with uh, regard to uh, the original word Greek. So the, the Greek word that we translate into the English word witness is martus. Martus. Does that remind you of anything? Does it sound like something? Maybe you've, uh, a, a word you've used that's uh, actually English, um, an English word. It's martyr. So the word uh, that we derive the word martyr from just is the word witness 
in Greek. And again, this brings us to this whole sort of legal framework. Another way to think about the book of Acts, it's a series of courtroom dramas where the witnesses are brought forward to make, to, to make, to give testimony again and again and again, and then judgment is rendered. That's the book of Acts. So there's a, there's uh, a testimony, there's a judgment, and guess what? Again and again and again, the witnesses are rejected. Not only are they rejected in the sense that the judgment rendered is, no, we don't accept that as so, we're going to take it to the next level and try to kill you. <laughs> so the witnesses give the testimony, the testimony is rejected, and then their lives are at risk. That's how the book of Acts unfolds. And we can see sort of the legal framework and sort, of, uh, sort, of, sort of hinted at uh, right here in verse 3. Take a look at verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. In other words, Jesus had to prove that he was alive to those guys. Now, again, we, we tend as modern people, because we suffer from chronological snobbery, to think everybody that lived before us was stupid. These are people who are much more familiar with death than you and me. These are people who saw animals die. These are people who saw friends and, and neighbors die, family members. These people buried dead bodies all the time. These are folks who understood that when you die, you just don't like get up and walk around. So when Jesus presents himself to them, to his disciples, remember, he has to prove it. I am alive. And he does so by presenting convincing proofs like eating fish, presenting his hands to be touched. In other words, it's not an, it, he, in fact, he, he says this right, he says this directly to his disciples in, in you know, the Gospels, I'm not a ghost. This isn't an apparition. This isn't like a vision. I'm alive. And I know it's hard to believe. So I'm going to stick around for a while and prove it. <laughs> and I think that's important because that's what they're called to be witnesses of. They're called to be witnesses of the resurrection because no one needed anybody to tell the world about the crucifixion. That was a public event. Everybody knew about it. The resurrection, on the other hand, is difficult to believe, and that's what the apostles were called to witness to. Now, what would that imply if Christ was raised? This is another thing that I think we need to get filled in on. What it implies if Christ is raised is there will be a final judgment. We will be raised and we will be judged. And the proof that that's so is the resurrection. Let me take you to Acts chapter 17. I'm not making this stuff up. I'm just been thinking about it a long time. <laughs> it may sound new, but it's really quite old. If you go to uh, the 17th chapter of Acts, we, you find that the Apostle Paul is in Athens, where tremendously sophisticated people hung out and debated with each other every day in the Areopagus. And the two groups that were told about uh, who were 
you know, having a difficult time uh, understanding what Paul was talking about were Stoics and Epicureans, neither of whom believed in life after death. They were materialists. Both schools were materialists. Now, they, they took the materialism in different directions, and I won't get into those directions at the moment. I think a lot of folks uh, know that the Apostle Paul was a well-read man and that uh, we have evidence of just the breadth of his reading from that sermon that he delivered at the Areopagus because he quotes off the top of his head, apparently, a couple of Stoic philosophers who are like third-tier Stoic philosophers. Not, they're not even like top-tier guys. And it makes a lot of sense because uh, Paul uh, came from a town, he was raised in a town that was considered one of the centers of Stoic philosophy in antiquity. So, but I've actually come across uh, an argument that Paul was also well-read when it came to the Epicureans. But both schools rejected life after death. They both thought the notion of physical resurrection ridiculous. And so the punchline to his sermon is this. This is from uh, the 17th chapter, as I noted before, of uh, the book of Acts. Here in verse 30, Paul says, as he's you know, giving the altar call, you could say, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That's the punchline. And that's what everybody responds to in what follows. Verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we want to hear you again about this, and so on and so forth. But that's the point. There is something that we're to look forward to. We're to look forward to the judgment, the last judgment, and our promise that there will be a judgment, and uh, our, our insight into who's going to be doing the judging is based on the resurrection of Christ. That's the connection that Paul makes. Now, if you didn't, never saw that correct connection before, now you can't but, you know, see the connection. We're talking about an apostle here, not Pastor Chris and his crazy uh, opinion. So what we're looking forward to is the return of the king. You ever wonder where, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien got that title? Well, yes, I mean, there, there is Arthur. But uh, I think that Arthur as well is, in some sense, a recapitulation or a sort of a, a, an image of Christ. Uh, we're to wait. We're to wait not just for the baptism of the Spirit, but we're to wait for the return of Christ. We're told that when, the, or, or when Jesus tells his disciples that uh, they're not going to be led in on when the Father is going to establish uh, the kingdom in the way that they're longing for. Uh, it just says uh, you just need to be content and leave that to the Father. But I think we're all longing for something, and we see that longing in many, uh, ex you know, expressed in many ways in our society. I think uh, even secular people have a sense that something's not quite right, that something needs to be fixed. And because they're secular, because they're materialists, 
and character, they take matters into their own hands. And what follows is nightmarish. Utopian dreams in which through the impatience of human beings and the longing that we have for righteousness and justice, uh, the power of the state is employed to sort of just make it happen. And as a result, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people suffer. We see it again and again because we're impatient, because we don't believe that there is a God who orders things. We don't believe in the cosmos. We don't believe that the, there is uh, a Christ who's seated at the right hand and rules. And consequently, we try to bring uh, you know, the kingdom into the world or into our time through the methods that are, are available to us. And as I noted, the result is horrific. Utopia, are you familiar with that word and its nature, what it means? It means no place. Utopia, no place. Thomas More, when he coined the term, titled a book, uh, Utopia, it was sort of a joke. But I think because we have this strong desire for things to be set right, we can't see the joke or get the joke. But we have something to do in the meantime while we wait. And that's, I think, the message that we ought to take from the book of Acts. Our task while we wait is to witness, to witness in Jerusalem, in Judea, and then Samaria. There's this marvelous, I think, implicit image of the pebble being dropped into the pond and the, and the ripples that sort of flow or, or sort of carry or, or move outward from the place where the, where the pebble has been dropped. In this case, the pebble went up. <laughs> the pebble has gone up, the pebble being Christ, and there's been this ripple effect ever since as the testimony of the apostles uh, continues to be proclaimed throughout the world. Now, there's something for you and I to say. We have a story to tell about how Christ has saved us from our sins, and that's great. I don't want to discourage anyone from talking about how Christ has delivered them, how Christ has redeemed them. But I do think we need to make sure that there is no confusion. The testimony of the apostles and your testimony are not the same thing. The testimony of the apostles has content that sounds like this. Christ rose. I was a witness. I'm passing on to you that testimony. Repeat it verbatim. Don't get clever. Don't talk about new wineskins. <laughs> and dress it up in some kind of pragmatic marketing approach. Just proclaim it. Christ rose. And this means something. It means something for you. It means something for me. It means that we're accountable to him. He is the judge. We will give an account. Now, what we ought to also take from this is that Christ has conquered sin and death, that Christ is our Savior and that we should call out to him right now and ask for forgiveness for the things that we've done that are wrong. And that's, what, again, what we see throughout the book of Acts is people being called to confess their sins and believe in Christ. But our faith has content, not just an emotional sort of surge. That's not what we're talking about. 
when we're talking about the faith. When we confess the Apostles' Creed, we are describing the account or the testimony of the Apostles, right? In other words, there's, there's something to it. It's not just your personal experience that we're talking about. We're talking about something that occurred in history, and it was like an apocalypse, a revelation, a sense in which the curtain was torn and we saw things that we never, never saw before that moment, but were always the case. See, that's the thing about an apocalypse. It's not like something new has been added. It's just you see things that were always so, and it's new to you. That's the revelation. Christ has always been the second person of the Trinity. He's always been God. Now you see it. Now you understand the implications of it. Now it's time for you to believe and behave like that. That's what you're called to do in response to the testimony. So, please share your testimony with those who know you, but don't confuse your testimony with the testimony of the apostles. What we have in the books of Acts is the record of those apostles going out and telling the world what they saw and what had to be proved to them. <laughs> and now they're trying to prove to others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, as uh, we conduct this study in the book of Acts in the days ahead, I pray, Lord, that you'll help us uh, to see just how the work of the church continues in the same spirit in which it began. We know that we need your spirit to empower us to proclaim uh, this testimony and share it with other people so that in the courts uh, in which this testimony is heard, whether we're talking about just simply the conversation that we have with a friend and the friend is called to uh, pronounce judgment uh, based on the testimony or in some formal sense in some legal body or institution, we pray, Lord, that you'll help us to be faithful uh, in testifying to the resurrection of Christ and his authority uh, uh, as it's been revealed, uh, even as the apostles uh, that we read about in the book of Acts were faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.